The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. There are many calls across the world to be closing economies, and I think it's terrific that in our country we're not closing the economy, and we just need to you know, maintain that openness to the world. That really is a huge strength. Openness in terms of people coming to live here, openness in terms of us trading with other countries in the world, openness to new ideas. You know, I think that's really one of the, the great strengths of our nation. Well, hello, my name is Matt Nicard. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ethical Partners Funds Management. Today, our guest is Nicholas Moore, former CEO of Macquarie Group and a man who may well be just a bit busier, maybe not quite as busy um, now than he has ever been. He doesn't do many of these interviews, so we're delighted to be able to speak with Nicholas today. Many people will also not know the full breadth of Nicholas's work and influence in the not-for-profit area and also in public policy. So welcome, Nicholas, to the Good Investing Podcast. Thanks, Matt. I'm pleased to be here. Right. Now, first, just a short bio. Uh, So Nicholas worked at Macquarie for 32 years, um, was the CEO for 10 years um, after he, well, prior to retiring in 2018. He's a solicitor and a chartered accountant. He's chair of Screen Australia, the Centre for Independent Studies, the Smith Family, the National Catholic Education Commission, and he's a member and former chair of the New South Wales uh, Business School Advisory Council, a member of the Council of the National Gallery of Australia, and part-time chair to the Market Task Force Expert Advisory Panel, and recently appointed to the Financial Regulator Assessment Authority within the Department of Treasury. So there's plenty going on. Now, Nicholas, I know I've promised to make this snappy and not keep it too long, um, and we've got a lot of ground to cover in a short period of time. Now, most people will know you from your 32 years at Macquarie, including 10 years as CEO. I think you were employee number 20 or something like that. No, no, I think there were more people than that when I joined. I know everyone's got a, a number. I was a very unremarkable employee, 17,027, but I know, <laughs> I know you were one of the first. Um, you, you took the, the reins in May 2008, of course, right in the midst of the GSC. Um, looking back on that, was it a real baptism of fire for you in the top job from memory? Well, I had been, as you say, at Macquarie for 22 years uh, before then. So a lot of the businesses I was uh, involved in, you know, made up a a large part of the group at that time. You know, I think it was, you know, two thirds of the group. So I knew most of the businesses as a third of the group I didn't know very well. Uh, And so to an extent, we had all at Macquarie, including the groups I was in charge of, had been working for the possibility of the event uh, that took place. Okay. Now, I've, I've, I've often wanted to ask you this. Um, obviously, you in, in the top job as CEO, you get people approaching all the time on on deal possibilities and, and pitching ideas and so on. When you get two smart execs coming in to pitch an idea to you, what are you looking for? Well, remember, it's not just you. It's a, You're part of a very large organisation. And at Macquarie, we always had a very large risk group. And the risk group would cover off all elements of any person's uh, proposal. So as you quite rightly say, um, ownership of businesses, ownership of deals was very important from a Macquarie viewpoint. So the people who came to see you were the owners of it. But on your side of the table, as it were, were the whole risk 
uh, group of Macquarie who were very uh, substantial, very knowledgeable. You know, we did hire, uh, we hired the best, we, we hoped anyway, in, in both the front office and the back office. So the risk people were, were, were very good in terms of working out uh, credit lists, risk, um, uh, all the uh, liquidity needs, um, everything to do with the impact of a transaction. So before you met with an executive, you normally had a briefing or you were being briefed at the same time as the risk team. And so it was always important to be deferring to the risk team in terms of uh, what they thought about the issue, uh, what they thought about the, the proposal and the different issues and the different work that they had done. Now, normally that was the start of a long process, which a very iterative process where the risk team would be going to and fro uh, with the team on an ongoing basis, where their role was obviously to uh, protect uh, the organisation in every possible way. Um, and the and the and the people putting the the business putting the transaction together or the business together had to have all the answers. So they were being constantly drilled by the uh, uh, by the risk group. Mm. Okay, now that's interesting. Um, going back to the GFC, is it is it is it true that one of the first things you insured was well funded, even in the depths of the crisis, was the Macquarie Foundation? I know you're very proud of the work that the foundation did and still does does now today. Hmm. Yeah, the foundation was a great legacy of Macquarie. It had been established um, relatively early in the in the days of Macquarie by by David Clark. He always saw that an, an organisation had a bigger responsibility. Uh, to society than just in terms of financial performance. Financial performance obviously very important, but always saw that there was a bigger bigger footprint. So David had championed the foundation and we had set it effectively to be a percentage of, of profits. Uh, obviously when our, our profits halved or more than halved in the GFC, the question is what do we do with the foundation? And we made the decision that we would maintain the funding of the foundation. Uh, throughout the period, and indeed we increased it obviously uh, over the uh, over the time quite substantially, and this was done with a wholehearted support of uh, of the management team and the board. And I think so far the the foundation's contributed almost half a billion dollars since inception to over two thousand four hundred charities, and I still think it's the premier corporate foundation in this country. I was I was honoured to make a contribution there while I was at Macquarie um, and continues to do fine work. So I think that's a true test. When when times are tough, um, what do you turn to? You make sure that that's well-funded. So I think that's I think that's right, but I think it's also important the character, is, as you just said, of the foundation is it's not a top-down foundation. It's a foundation that's owned very much by the uh, by the uh, by the people at Macquarie. And so you supported um, the works of the foundation, the foundation supported the areas you're interested in. That's the model. So, um, and that's why it has such support. And and we think it's 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 you know excellent in terms of the employees of Macquarie having a wider view of society, uh, but also in terms of the effectiveness. Because one of the big issues, as you know, in the in the not for profit area, is how effective. Uh, is is the money? You know, we we are very effective in terms of making money. In terms of trying to always optimize the efficiency of businesses, of making sure the revenues optimized and the costs are minimized, and all that sort of stuff. When it turns to, to 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 giving, we want to make sure that we we had the same discipline. And the best way of having that discipline from a business viewpoint was this idea of business ownership. The people in the business were owning the bottom line of the business, and similarly in the not-for-profit sector, the idea of the foundation is we the foundation would support areas where 
individually individuals were putting their own time or their own money in because we knew that would mean it was effectively being spent and therefore the the, the greatest return for the community on that investment. Mm. Now that's interesting. I often think the the making a decision to give is actually the easy part. Making it effective um, is actually the difficult part. Very difficult. And and again from a top down viewpoint virtually impossible. Yeah. So that's why you look at the the people who are in your organisation who are the believers in the cause, they're the ones yeah. who'll be best at making sure it's effectively yeah. spent. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. I'd like to go back a little bit further. Um, something was quite controversial at the time and I, I remember it very, very well. In, in 2002, the Macquarie-led consortium won the bid for the sale of Sydney Airport, which uh, was just nine months after 9-11. The price paid there was was five point six billion dollars, which, um, as reported at the time, was six hundred million dollars higher than the second highest bid, and you had to raise um, a lot of money now. And at the time, certainly four billion dollars of senior debt, which was the largest debt package ever agreed, as I understand, by an Australian borrower. And I remember the controversy, and I remember the headlines. You know, Macquarie's paid too much. Um, what are they going to do with the asset? Um, they've made a mistake. I just love to. Uh, hear insights as to how do you hold the line and how do you keep the faith in the work that's been done that you've made the right call when there's so much apparent controversial or, or different views out there? Well, as you say, you have to back your own judgment and the judgment of your team. It's not an individual judgment. This is a judgment that had been made uh, by many people in the team. And coming back to your question about the uh, risk management team, you know, a lot of work had been done it, uh, in terms of justifying the value. It's a long-term asset and they were looking at it from a long-term viewpoint. And having done the work um, and being familiar with assets of that nature, and it wasn't the first airport obviously we invested in, it wasn't the first infrastructure project we'd invested in, we were very comfortable uh, from the point of view of value. And that's, you know, that's the, the important thing. Uh, and, um, and the question was, of course, we, we took it on um, not with the idea of it being a static asset, but an asset where which we thought was underinvested. And so I think within, I can't remember what the period was, but relatively short period of time, we spent $2 billion. When I say we, this was the owners of the airport spent $2 billion in terms of upgrading uh, a whole range of the facilities and continue to spend a lot of capital uh, improving uh, the quality of the airport. And, you know, that to us was, you know, what it's all about. It's not just the fact it's a, it's a well-positioned asset, but the question is what can you, what can you do? How do you make it a, a better asset? How do you make it a better offering? And, and the people we had at Macquarie at the time uh, were really, the, we thought, the best airports team in the world. A lot of them had come out of the old British airports who were one of the first airports to be privatised in the world. And so the whole way of looking at the asset uh, was transformed from where we had been in Australia, which was the idea of these are these assets are a burden. You know, no one wanted to, you know, they would just seem to be a, a whole source of problem to actually saying these assets were a great opportunity and that, you know, the 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 public really was being underserved by what was there and it could be made so much better. And so we went in with those with with, with that set of eyes that this was an underperforming asset. It could be made a, a much better asset. We had the people, most importantly, we had the capital to allow us to to do that. And and plainly, um, we were you know pleased with the uh, with the outcome year after year. Mm. And 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 of course to almost close the loop on that, almost twenty years later, and um, notwithstanding a second airport coming to Sydney as well, that there's recently an agreed deal again to buy Sydney Airport. 
um, not exactly the same arrangement, of course, because it's um, it's twenty years later. But the price there's over twenty billion dollars for the equity alone, and and then there's debt on top of that um, as well. Does it give you kind of a great deal of, I guess, vindication or satisfaction looking back on how all that's played out? Um, well, as I said, I, I think at the time we were at the time when it was being managed by Macquarie, we were very. Uh, pleased with what was being done, the capital being spent, the improvements in in results coming through, and yes, it's it's worth more than it was back then. But you know, frankly, everything is. Um, but we think it has outperformed, and we think it has outperformed uh, because of not just the fact that interest rates have fallen dramatically since then. Of course, not just the fact that GDP grew and that air travel grew. All of those things we were we weren't expecting interest rates to fall, but we were expecting GDP to flow through. We were expecting GDP. Uh, air travel to to increase. Most importantly, I think if there is pride in the in the team, and there is pride in the in the team who worked on that transaction back then and then managed it, was the the investments that took place and the good management decisions that took place. You know, a long time ago now, but but they're the ones that I think that uh, that, that where, where the, the pride is felt. And the whole infrastructure area, of course, is is quite remarkable. Macquarie essentially, in many ways, created the asset class. Was it? Was it ever part of the grand plan, it's kind of over your tenure as CEO, almost to create the listed infrastructure asset class and then within 10 years almost dismantle it and 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 take it unlisted? Uh, or was that just adapting to the times or have I got that wrong? Uh, how do you think about that, that evolution over your CEO tenure at Macquarie? Well, I think the, the realisation that infrastructure was a different asset class than was available at the time uh, was one that sort of we had uh, back in the in the early 90s when the privatisation uh, wave started uh, going around the world. And it takes a while when you think about an asset to think about its underlying characteristics. And there's a whole range of things with infrastructure that were, were inter- interesting to us. Um, so thinking about that as a category, thinking about that it was underinvested and underappreciated. And then with some of our first assets to allowed us to really road test, as it were, those thoughts and really develop those thoughts because, you know, all of us, uh, it's, you know, we, we form our judgments not objectively sat at the desk and looking at the screen. We form them by working with people and working with problems and working through the outside world. And so our knowledge of what this sector could be grew by actually being deeply involved and not just one person. Obviously, there's a whole team of people at Macquarie who are deeply involved in the sector and learning things and, um, uh, you know, learning the good and the, and the challenging elements of the of the asset class. But having a real, really important that, that, that we were, yes, our background was in finance, but very quickly we brought in a whole range of industry experts, which I think really did change our change our thinking, as I mentioned, with things like airports, bringing in the airport team uh, for British airports. It's huge. You know, they look at the world differently. Now, we look at one way, they look at it differently, similarly from the point of view of roads and construction, from the point of view of water and all these different industry areas. We were very quick to bring in people who weren't of our background. They were people who had different skills and deep skills, really deep skills. And when we were working on either developing these projects or buying these assets, the bid rooms were mixed with with people who, yes, could you know talk talk about what debt looked like, 
but actually, you can't really talk about debt in abstract in the abstract or equity. It all comes back to what the underlying business is, what the underlying asset is, and that's when you need the people who really understood these um, underappreciated assets. So it was an it was very much an iterative process in terms of how we move forward. Uh, we're open minded, you know. One of these stories where you you try different things, and you know some things work and some things don't. So the the trial and error process is is critical, of course, to to any any business development, any any society. And trial and error was very much part of of what we were doing. And obviously, if you are doing trial and error, you've got to make sure that you understand the scope of you know what the cost of the of of the error could be. So we gradually built a whole group of people, whole group of teams, and we you know carefully step forward, step by step, and developing an understanding of what the sector was and why it could be uh, a useful asset for investors, you know, low risk, inflation backed, GDP linked, uh, and with genuine upside through good management. And if you say, well, it's not, you know, the, the, the operating margins here, the, the amount that you do from an operation viewpoint isn't all that large relative to the cash flow. But actually, obviously, particularly with interest rates being low, and particularly if you're trading on a um, uh, a very high multiple, those operational changes in terms of either increasing the revenue or reducing the costs have a, a massive impact on the uh, on the value of the asset. So, getting that understanding. Uh, so, in terms of whether it's in the in the ca- in the listed market or the unlisted market, you know, really our, our view was that we we're agnostic at the time to it. Our first infrastructure fund that was set up by actually. Um, a guy called Mark Ramsey, who you may or may not know, a global infrastructure fund was unlisted. So our first fund was unlisted. Our first asset of substance was listed, being being um, Hills Motorway. Then we moved into having listed funds. But we we basically were agnostic in terms of where the capital will come from. We thought it was a good long term investment. Who the investors were would you know were dependent upon their appetite. And frankly, as we know, in 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 good times, listed. Capital puts a high value on on assets. In in bad times, listed capital puts a low value. And so, naturally, uh, from where um, where I was sat, we wanted to have a a a foot in both camps. So to be sort of independent of of where the market was. And I think that model sort of you know continued uh, happily for uh, for some time. All right. So moving towards the end of your um, tenure um, as as CEO, you. You fronted the the Banking Royal Commission here in, in Sydney in 2018 and your appearance was not only brief and without controversy, but Macquarie was held up as the institution with a responsible and appropriate culture or corporate culture, which is, um, of course, like some others that appeared um, at the Royal Commission. That must have been quite satisfying, knowing that I think at the time that you were that you were looking to um, to, to retire. Um, what was the, the essence of that responsible Corporate culture. I know you've touched on it partly so far, but what was the essence of that corporate culture that that really held Macquarie up quite quite strongly in in light of um, of that broader Royal Commission? Well, well, thanks, Matt, for your uh, for your summary of that. I mean, I, I think um, you know, needless to say, m- m- there is, there are no organisations who are who are faultless uh, with regard to the sorts of issues the Royal Commission and other outside bodies. Have you know all organisations and people in organisations make mistakes um, on a on, on a basis that is is more than you know you'd, you'd like and the key 
um, for all organisations and what the outside world expects of us uh, and holds us accountable to is making sure when mistakes are made that you respond and you respond in a, in a, in a timely manner. Now, did we make mistakes? And I think, you know, as you can see with the Royal Commission, yes, yes, we did make mistakes. Um, did we respond? Yes, we responded. Uh, was it timely? We, we tried to be as timely as possible. You know, I, I think that part of the culture uh, is, is very, a very important part of the culture. As you know from your time at Macquarie, um, we always used to say that things will, we always used to acknowledge that things will go wrong, but what we would ask for all our people is to call it out sooner. Uh, I remember uh, one of the former CEOs of Macquarie used to make the statement um, that the most important rule at the organisation is not to bottom draw an issue. If something's gone wrong, to actually bring it out. You know, daylight is the is a great disinfectant, of course, that everyone uh, everyone says. And within the organisation, having that having that culture of bringing out things that go wrong and, and addressing them as soon as you can. Um, most things can be not everything, but most things can be fixed if 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 they see the light of day. If you can step up and and address them. So when things go wrong, it's usually because in any organisation. Um, you know they haven't got the attention uh, from the senior people who who can who can take who can take action. So I, I don't think um, Macquarie is 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 as unique at all as you say. I think all organisations out there are, are endeavouring to do the right thing. I think the um, um, in in my experience, I you know I, I can't think of an organisation where there has been. Uh, you know, that I've dealt with as customers or clients of, of Macquarie where there is an intention to mislead or, or do the wrong thing. Okay, now this leads me to a phone call I received from my father last year. He rang me very, very excited and said, Matt, guess what? And now I thought he'd broken 40 for nine holes at Bayview Golf Club. He might have done that as well, but it's not the reason he was calling. Um, he said... Um, and I almost quote word for word, the government has got Nicholas Moore working for us to manage the Virgin Airlines situation, which I had to sit back and, and think about. And I hadn't thought about it that, that way. Um, and this is, of course, when you, um, when you represented us, I guess, as, as taxpayers in, in many ways. I'd be fascinated to know how that situation um, came about because, um, as I understand it, your, your job is to protect the Australian taxpayer and engage the administrator with the administrator on behalf of the Australian government for that whole kind of virgin um, bankruptcy type situation there. So um, that was the role. I'd I'd love you to take us through that. Um, When you got the call, how did you feel? How did you make the decision to to help out? Well, well, the government um, was and and continues to be engaged with the, you know, the broad community, I think, and particularly when um, when the virus broke out, they were engaged in terms of its impact, its likely impact. And so, you know, it's part of many people, you know, they, I was I was talking to them, one of many voices uh, they were listening to. When the Virgin situation came, I mean, the government, I think, was very clear in their approach of saying, this is a commercial situation and the market should be allowed to play out. And I think their appointment of me was partly reflecting a message they wanted to send to the world that this is a market situation and we want to see a market uh, a market outcome here. And so that was where they were coming from. So my instructions were, were clear. The government obviously was also 
prepared and was preparing for all possible outcomes, not just with respect to uh, aviation, but you know across the economy more 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 broadly. And so, in terms of my role was to was to help fulfil their vision in terms of how the government could usefully assist in ensuring a, a market outcome. Number one, but number two, ensuring that the government was in a position to respond in all circumstances. And, um, you know, I was very pleased to do that. You must have had some pretty fascinating discussions with with bidders at the time. Did you find it, a, a very, even with your experience, did you find that a really unique situation um, or, or did you just kind of view it as a assessing transaction as you have done many, many times in the past? Yeah, I think it was more the latter. I mean, it was, it was, it was felt, you know, sort of pretty familiar in terms of, you know, people looking at the business and working out, um, you know, I was a, I was effectively a fly on the wall for uh, you know for for virtually all of it. Of course, I mean they were working through a market solution, and you know we were being made aware of what was happening, but we weren't participating. So, and, and you know, listening to the different bidders, it was something that was very familiar. You know, we obviously in my time as at Macquarie, whether we were equity or debt or advisors or what have you on deals, I mean it was a situation that was very very familiar. Was it a natural a national service type situation? Did you feel as though you were you're representing everyday Australians, the taxpayer, and making sure there's a, or the best to your ability, a good outcome is there for the country. Is that how you thought about it? Yeah, I think all the people in the in the government, I was, you know, effectively, you know, part of Treasury for the role, and I think everyone in Treasury views it views it like that. Is it true your fee was one dollar? <laughs> yes. Yes. And the second question is, have they paid it? <laughs> Very good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll have to check. Um, now, now, since then, you've been named as the chair of the. The Financial Regulator Assessment Authority, so the FRAA. Can you share with us what you see as the primary role of, of that new body? Mm-hmm. So it came out of the um, the Royal Commission. It's a it's a subset of Treasury, effectively. So the role I was doing before was as part of Treasury. You know, as a subset. You know, the Market Task Force. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your introduction. So that's that's a subset of Treasury. And what we're doing on the on the FRA is also a subset of of, of the Commonwealth Treasury. Um, so there's three. Uh, uh, members, including me, uh, Craig Drummond, and uh, and and Gina Gottlieb, and uh, all with a background, um, broad background, um, and we're supported by, or we're helping six people in in the Com- in the Commonwealth Treasury, and so it's a permanent body that's been set up, as I said, coming out of the Royal Commission recommendation, to be reviewing ASIC one year, APRA the next, ASIC the following year, APRA, so on and so forth, to try to see, provide some object, objectivity in terms of the uh, operation of the regulators. Now, the regulators' reporting remains unchanged. You know, they report to the, the Commonwealth um, uh, Treasurer, they report to Parliament, all of that is unchanged. So we are just providing um, a view that flows into the uh, the Treasurer Treasury and uh, and of course the Parliament in terms of the the, the public report, so it's a, it's a way of having a, a uh, an independent objective assessment in terms of uh, the of the efficiency and the capability of the regulators. So it's a it's it's establishing. So it's, it's interesting at the moment we're establishing uh, the Secretariat for the you know first time you know basically getting people in place who will be following the regulators and thinking about the effectiveness of the regulators 
the efficiency of the regulators and their capability on an ongoing basis. So it's not a just a, a one-hit review. It's a it's putting in place the the ongoing uh, review uh, elements of it. So it's a it's a fascinating exercise. Um, all of us are very interested in terms of um, what we can contribute. Um, the role of the regulators, of course, uh, is remains unchanged. Um, we're just there to be helpful in terms of providing this uh, objective view. Good luck with that. That's it's a very unique and, and different situation for uh, for this country, as I understand. Changing gears here a little bit, you're you're also chair of the Centre for Independent Studies, whose executive director is my very good friend Tom Switzer, um, Nicholas. Big picture here. What do you think are Australia's biggest and most significant challenges today? Well, um, I, I guess I think the first point is Australia is you know continues to be very well placed. I think in terms of how we're set up as a nation, and when I say that, I mean it, you know the people of Australia. You know, yes, we've got a, a terrific uh, environment, a terrific uh, land mass, and and resources available to us. But more importantly, I think as a society, I think we're we're well set up. Our values are um, uh, are excellent, and and you know, continuing to be, I think, as a nation, we continue to be thoughtful and make you know both you know good and difficult decisions on an ongoing basis. So I think that's the that's the first point, and the point to give us all uh, confidence. Um, in terms of challenges, there's a whole host, obviously, in terms of short term and longer term. Um, one of the areas I'm particularly sort of focused on is, as you do when you get older, is the is making sure we have the best opportunities for the next generation, or not just the next generation, the generation who are who are stepping up at the moment. Uh, you know, a number of things are concerning in terms of w- resources that you think. Perhaps could could have a better outcome. Now, what what I what I mean is um, one of the things I'm very interested in, of course, is is education. Um, Smith family is all about education uh, for disadvantaged kids. Uh, the Catholic schools, of course, twenty percent of the kids in the country go through Catholic schools. As a nation, I think we've been um, really outstanding in terms of the will of the nation to provide resources to the educational sector and we're well funded and I think the teachers that we have um, and the and the and the and the principals around the country are very ded- dedicated very focused on the on the welfare and the well-being and the educational needs of our kids uh, all that said if you look at some of the international standards and tests coming through, you'd say you'd sort of question some of the some of the methodology in terms of how we are teaching and, and why the outcomes aren't as good as as we would expect. You know, when you look at the international standards, the rankings we're we're falling whilst our expenditure is increasing. When you put a, a business mindset on, you'd say, oh gosh, what's going on there? Now obviously it's not just a business mindset you need to adopt to this, you need to have a broader mindset. But I think that's one of the issues we need to we need to think uh, we need to think and think um, bravely about in terms of what's happening there. The great news is we've got the resources. The great news is we've got the people in terms of the teachers and the uh, 
and the principles and the administrators around it. The question is, are we are we getting the outcomes that all of that should be delivering? So I think that's that's an important thing for our nation in terms of the investment we're making, and it's the most important, frankly, investment we can make. I think um, when we extend that to the uh, to the vocational sector as well, I think there is a whole group of questions in terms of again massive amount of resources. Um, uh, it's obviously a huge industry in terms of uh, overseas students in particular. Uh, again, I think if you look at outcomes, you can you can you know there's there's a need to be asking, are we getting the outcomes that the resources and the dedication uh, um, should deliver? So I think that's that's really important. Uh, and I think coming out of the virus, uh, one of the areas we're very familiar with is the impact on the young, particularly the disadvantage, is something I think they will need a lot of scrutiny. And it's only the evidence, you know, the, the question, the issues today at the moment are really anecdotal. And so the question is what what has the impact been of kids not being able to go to school? What What's the impact for, for your kids? What's the impact for kids from a disadvantaged background? One suspects they're going to be different. And what do we need to do as a society to ensure that catch up, to, you know, to make sure that the kids who have suffered, you know, and, you know, Anecdotally, lots of kids have suffered through this. Uh, that that they're given the support they need to actually catch up for for what's been lost. So I think education mm-hmm. is a is a big issue. I think the second issue out there is a uh, you know, practical issue of of housing affordability. I'm very much, as you can guess, given my background, um, driven by the view that housing affordability is a choice that communities make. Uh, it's a choice through our regulatory structure. And we have chosen high house prices. And the cost of that isn't immediately apparent, but there is a very large cost to that. And I think the cost of that will be uh, many people will not be able to buy a house who otherwise could as a result of um, of housing regulations. Now, that's an, that's an important cost, and it's one of these costs that you – you don't see, so I think that's a that's an important issue in terms of uh, in terms of where we're sat. Um, I guess the the the, the third issue is uh, we've done a a great issue, a, a great job. When I say we, the government's done a great job over over many years now in terms of opening the economy and keeping it open. And there are many calls across the world to be closing economies. And I think it's terrific that in our country we're not closing the the economy, and we just need to you know maintain uh, that openness to the world. That really is a huge strength uh, to our society. Openness in terms of people coming to live here. Openness in terms of uh, our us trading with uh, other countries in the world. Openness in terms of openness to new ideas. You know I think that's really one of the the great strengths of of our nation. And um, and there are calls around the world, obviously, to be closing the world, and and you know we have to continue, which we are doing now, but continue to be the voice of keeping it open. Thanks, Nicholas. That's a, a very fulsome answer to my question. I'm sure there'll be great interest in in those three issues from from listeners, and and certainly the first one you mentioned is is an area that the Smith family is is focusing on. I know you are focusing on. Um, one of Australia's most respected charities. I noticed almost a hundred years old. I don't know if there's any, um, it's a hundred. Actually, I'm going after this, um, Matt, to a the the kickoff of the hundred year celebration. <laughs> so uh, 
Yes. Good. Well, hopefully there's um, that, 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 that is uh, a, a just reward to the team, um, first of all, but also um, I guess triggers even more um, focus from the community on the work that, that the Smith family does. I think that's right. Now, I think it also naturally when you have these anniversaries, it, it results in a degree of navel-gazing where organisations look back over the 100 years and say, what are the really great things that we've done over this time? What's the difference that we've made? And use that as a way to inspire them uh, going forward, inspire them in terms of the difference they've made in the past, but also to say, okay, what other tools do we have available to us today? Uh, the organisation is is you know much more capable now than it was in the past. Therefore, when we look at what was achieved in the past, we should be more ambitious uh, for the future. All right. Now, just shifting gears here, and I promise not to keep you for too long. So, just some some questions we we ask all guests on this podcast on leadership and other things. What what's the most important aspect of good leadership you think is most often overlooked? Well, I'm not sure it's overlooked, but I think one of the the most important element of good leadership is appreciation of the people who are working with and for you, that you see only a small amount of the effort that they put in and you have to really credit them with a lot more than you see. You have to credit them with a lot more in terms of how hard they're working, how hard they're thinking about the problem. Um, And naturally, given your limited vision, it should be you, you have to build in the fact that they're doing a lot more than you than you think they are. And therefore you have to be very generous in terms of how you judge both their successes and also their failings. And really, really and it's very easy to to overlook this because our vision is so narrow. You know, we think we see everything, particularly when you're a leader, you know, you you see everything in the organization. Well of course you don't. You only see a very, very small amount. And so really important that when you deal with people, you are very generous because you only ever see a tiny fraction of all the good things they've done. A good answer. Do, do you mind mentioning when you've failed at something and what you might have learnt from that and maybe how that set you up for success later? Well, I think that probably the flip side of what I just said, when you fail at something is when you when you um, you don't you're not bothered to see the full story or you think you know the full story, uh, you know, lack of lack of humility in that, you know, you only ever see a tiny, a tiny part of the world and there's only a few elements that you think are significant but inevitably the world's much more complex and the people you deal with are much more complex than you think. All right. Um, thinking back now to, to one of your earlier investment decisions can either be personal or business. Can you remember making um, one of your, your best earlier investment decisions and and how did that work out and, and what did you learn? Anything come to mind? Well, I, I think, again, this this idea of, you know, humility, I know it's obvious, but you, you see investments and you see a few features and you say, oh, well, this will be good because of A, B and C. And inevitably you don't see the full story. Now, sometimes that can be good and sometimes it's not so good. The key point, I think, with investment as with every element of building a business is you have to, when things don't go right or when things go well, you have to take the lessons and take it forward. It's too easy, I think, to, you know, a trader mentality, which, which you know, I'm very respectful of traders, 
is you get out of a losing position, which is fine. But you then have to say, what was the lesson? And what was the lesson? And what was the lesson? And what was the lesson? So, so I think you've got to be realistic in terms of exiting positions. And in life, inevitably, just our psychology means that we will stay in positions longer than we should. We'll keep people in the organisation trying to make them better, you know, longer than they can. We'll keep businesses going longer than we should. That's an inevitability. But just to chop and change rapidly is also a mistake. So I think it's the, the key thing of when you are, when a position is working, when a business is working, when an idea is working, you build on it and you build on it and you build on it. You don't keep trying to go back to ground zero and then rebuild again. You build on what is successful, what are good insights. Uh, sometimes they'll take you to a place that, that isn't so good and then you go back to where you were and you, and you build forward again. So this idea of trial and error, uh, it, doesn't, it never stops. You, you, you continually need to be testing um, new, new steps for the business and but be objective and when it doesn't work, you sort of say, okay, well, we tried that. What have we learned? What do we take forward again? And we've talked about risk a little bit um, before. The organisations that you're in at the moment, um, what, are you, what are you telling them about managing risk? Well, what's the number one element of risk management that, that comes to mind that's a, a lesson for, for a lot of those organisations? Well, I don't know about the organisations. I mean, at the moment, but you know, as, as you know, at Macquarie, we had a philosophy from a risk viewpoint that we always would look try to imagine what the worst case situation could be and make sure we could afford it. You never want to be in a position where if something goes wrong that you can't afford it and that it will challenge the business or the organisation in some way. So I think the, the key question is identifying risks thoughtfully. Um, some risks you should just never take. A whole bunch of risks you should just never take. You should never go there. If you are going to take a risk, make sure you size the position you take having regard to what can go wrong. And when it does go wrong, you know, make sure it's um, uh, it's affordable. And you know one of the, the only you know one of the you know good or bad things of the um, of the GFC, which obviously was a major impact on on our organization and many in the world, is when we looked back at what happened, where we had losses, they were all within the original conception of what could have gone wrong. So they were, all were affordable by the organisation, by their very nature. Um, one of the issues, in, with the benefit of hindsight, when we looked at them, one of the questions we asked ourselves, and I think this is relevant for every position you take today, it's not just can you afford it if it goes wrong, but is it worth it? if it goes right. So weighing up the worst case in terms of what can go wrong versus how much you can make if it goes right, that's what tends to go wrong at this side, this stage of the market. People take positions, they think if it goes wrong, I can afford it. But then with the benefit of hindsight, if it does go wrong, it was like, well, I, I could have made one if it went right, but I'd lose 10 if it goes badly. Yeah with the benefit of hindsight, is that risk return the right one? And I know these are simple simple stories, simple points, but I think we have to apply it to absolutely everything we do, just like what's the, what's the upside, what's the downside, 
um, and making sure that's right. And today, you just see the downside. We, the upside we know is continually being squeezed. Um, are we mindful of the downside we're taking for that upside? And remember, you don't have to take a position. That's always you've got to be in the position where you're saying you don't have to be in the market, right? You don't have to be in that business. You don't have to be doing it. You've got to be in that position where you don't have to do it because that, again, is a is a real trap. So, Nicholas, if you had to name one person or, or people um, who inspired you the most in any aspect of your of your career or life to date, who, who would they be? Well, undoubtedly, my parents. They um, they created me not just uh, physically, of course, but in every other every other way. Um, you know, my mother was, of course, endlessly um, enthusiastic in terms of any minor achievement that I might have had. Um, and my uh, and my father was a was a constant example of 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 hard work and and great family values in terms of his dedication uh, to my mother and to uh, and to the family. So I don't think uh, I could ever go beyond them. All right, winding down more generally now, almost done. Um, what are you reading at the moment, Nicholas? Um, well, I'm reading a few things. I'm reading a um, I'm rereading uh, a book on the Anglo-Saxons, which um, um, which I I liked a lot, and I'm just reading it again um, by Mark Morris, which is an area of a part of history I'm not particularly familiar with. I'm reading uh, another book on um, on the start of the Second World War, the first two years, Germany uh, Germany ascendant, which is again it's a lot of sort of Insights where the economics and the drivers, in terms of these things, are more at the fore uh, rather than uh, rather than other issues. So you know that's obviously uh, obviously uh, appealing. Um, and I'm reading uh, another book uh, looking at um, at the old stories of of why societies are different. And looking at this, this is a French psychologist who looks at the underlying um, family relationship, effectively, of Europeans and you know different parts of Europe and and people around the world, and saying that's a predictor of behaviour. So a few things, but I've always got a few books I'm dipping in and out of, depending how you um, depending how you feel on the, on the day. I know you like your history. I remember showing you around Hong Kong. One uh, one time, and uh, you asked me how long I thought the Hong Kong Island was in its current geological form. I don't know if you don't remember that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it was a very scary question, Nicholas, because I think I was wrong by about 10,000 years, <laughs> but you quickly corrected me. Um, so that, that's certainly a wide, a wide reading list uh, indeed. Um, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Well, you know, contradictory advice, as one always does. I mean, the contradiction would be... Um, um, you know, feel confident. I mean, I always, you know, looking back, I, you know, it, it seems that I, I was confident. I didn't realise at the time, but but be confident in terms of what you take on and embrace. Um, the world, the world has an endless appetite for for new people and new ideas, and you should be very um, confident that there'll always be people, you know, wanting wanting new stuff. So I think that's really important to emphasize with with all young people. You know, the world the world does actually want you. Um, 
Uh, and the second element, of course, coming back to our little ret- ret- return equation is, you know, risk is real and make sure always um, you you bottom out the downside. Now, the good thing is if you do that properly, it gives you more confidence. Mm. So if you actually work out what the downside, um, it often gives you a lot more confidence than you than you would otherwise. So it gives you a methodology to think about to think about the world. No, that's um, that's very interesting. All right, now finally, just a little quiz, and, and this is a quiz my nine year old likes to play. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> how can it be? Um, so there's a. I'm just going to give you two choices here, and uh, you've got to answer immediately. Spontaneity is key. Ocean swimming or pool swimming? Ocean swimming every time. Listed or unlisted investments? Well, today I'd say unlisted. All right. To unwind, do you prefer a glass of red or vigorous exercise? Morning or night, right? So morning, definitely exercise. Night, definitely a glass of wine. And uh, and a good book or a good movie? Uh, well, I think it has to be a good book. As my mum used to say, and still does say, books are your friends. They're always there for you. Yeah, but I like movies too. So let's not <laughs> down, downplay movies. But uh, just in terms of the hours of the day, I suspect that tells a story. Well, Nicholas, you've been um, a most generous guest on the Good Investing Podcast. I really do thank you for your time and um, good luck. Thanks, Matt. Well, good luck with you too. And uh, congratulations on this initiative and your new business. I, I hope it continues to go well. It's terrific hearing how well it's gone already. And I wish you all the all the best in the business and, and best for uh, for the Christmas season. Oh, you're, too, you're too kind. Thanks, Nicholas. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes. And for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.